Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that asks, what if the Jolly Green Giant were not just real, but he was your friend? I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, and welcome back for another episode. This time around, you'll meet artist Xinying Kor, who you can find on the web at xingkor.com. That's S-H-I-N-G-K-H-O-R.com, and it'll all be in the show notes, as usual. Thanks again to everyone who contributed to the Kickstarter campaign to bring back the new Disruptors. You can still help underwrite more episodes and a longer run of the show by visiting newdisrupt.org support. That's newdisrupt.org support. Support, and you can then contribute a one-time amount or follow links to Patreon to contribute monthly. Various awards are available, including a t-shirt and an exclusive enamel pin, as well as being thanked on the podcast, like these Disruptor-level patrons. Thanks to Chris Higgins, Marcin Wissery, Kim Alberg, Pete Burtis, John Mitchell. Your support made it all possible, and thanks for bringing the show back. This episode is also sponsored by Glowforge, a patron of the show during the crowdfunding campaign. I'll tell you more about their unique laser cutter later in the podcast and how to get a significant discount off the purchase of one. And now, on to the episode. In this episode, I have Xing Yin Kor, and Xing is a multi-spectrum artist. She's an illustrator, cartoonist, installation artist. You might think that she lives in space. I'm not sure if she does or not. I think she's on Earth. But uh, she's worked across a lot of medium and a lot of technology and a lot of ideas. And thank you for coming on the podcast, Xing. Thank you. I am very excited to be on this podcast. <laughs> well, I, I love to have you on because I um, it's not that I want people who do different kinds of things, but I think I, I think of myself a little bit as a writing vagabond. Like I go around and I kind of collect professions on my different you know pouches and things around my belt. And it's like, oh, I can do this thing about typesetting or I can do this article about uh, the nature of whatever. And uh, when I look at your career, I feel like you have all of the, you've got this belt full of tools and you pull them out at different times depending on what's going on. Um, and I, I think that's kind of the nature of how independent work works these days. So I'd love to talk to you about all the different aspects of what you're working on. Totally. I mean, I think I think a lot of us freelancers kind of end up having to be like that. Just, um, you know, sort of all jack of all tradesy type people. Just, I don't know, I mean, we need money. And um, the it. more skills we have, the more <laughs> the more useful that just ends up being. But I've just always been a person that just uh, really enjoyed like learning how to do things. Um, and it, I feel like it wasn't until the last, you know, maybe five years of my life that all that actually started to become a reasonable art career. So it's been really great. Well, I think you have a really unique expression that I don't see. It's not that other people's work is interchangeable, but you have like an idiom of your expressivity. So when I look at like the creatures you make or your um, comic, the Center for Otherworld Science in particular, like it's a incredibly well-developed uh, worldview and universe that seems completely real and sits on its own. And I've never seen anything like it anywhere else. And that feels like something very hard to do in this world with a bazillion creative people, but also... I don't feel like you set out to do that. Is that right? I mean, you're not looking to create something uh, specific that's different. Is this all coming from inside? There's not a, I mean, this is all your expression. I mean, I do, I do feel that it's important to kind of have themes that reoccur throughout your life um, and person. 
Uh, and, and I think that just kind of naturally comes out in a lot of my work because it's things that I think of all the time. Uh, maybe not specifically, you know, monsters that exist in the world, but the idea of people connecting with something foreign, the nature of collecting and archiving and making sense out of the world around you. Um, and I think that's something that translates into lots of different mediums. And, and I think that's kind of the consistent theme that makes it into all my work, regardless of what the work is. Oh, that's great. And I, and I, I think there's a, an aspect of it, too, is, I mean, some of your work is very, it's like alien in nature and that it doesn't relate to anything that we know as a recognizable thing on Earth. Um, but it's very relatable. I feel an empathy for the creatures and things you create. They are something that um, want me to understand them as opposed to like Jim Woodring, who I think is a brilliant artist, but I feel like his oh, work, so good. He's, it's partly founded on um, alienation and displacement. Like it's very hard to understand if you can even understand what's going on in his world. It's sort of fundamentally incomprehensible to us. So we kind of weave our way through it and it can be, I don't want to say necessarily unpleasant. It's more, it's a very wide spectrum, but I feel your work always draws me in. So no matter how alien it is, I want to be part of it. I want to understand it more. I want to like be in the place, you know, it's like work crush. Like how do I become an other world science, scientist and go visit this colony with fascinating creatures and interesting little people, or maybe they're not little, they seem little in context. But Well, well, they, they vary, you know, it's sort of um, the, like in the comic, the people do have to be fairly tiny because the monsters are so large. That's a completely practical issue. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know how big they are. There's no scale. But, you know, all right. So I'm, I'm digging into the, I'm trying to get you to dig into the nature of your work, but but I should <laughs> I should back up. Let's, let's go back a little bit. As you said, you've uh, kind of come into this artistic career um, more fully in the last five years. And I wonder, you know, I'm always curious about, um, it's like the personal journey and personal path is um, you, you have such a wide range of artistic expression that crosses with, you know, commercial things like installation art and comics. And so some of this is obviously labor of love. And some of it is, is I was, I was trained as a graphic designer. So I'm very interested in this commercial expression of artistic vision. And that seems to be an area that you have an intersection in. And so how did you get into this current artistic efflorescence? What was the path that led you into this? <laughs> All right. Well, let's start with just like actual training, um, which is I didn't go to art school, but I uh, I was a theater major focusing on technical theater, specifically in scenic design. Mm. And I also went to grad school for it, although I didn't finish grad school. That's a long story. Well, it's a very short story, but you know, <laughs> but not one I want to tell anyway. But anyway, so so my actual training is in very like a very specific technical skill of building like literal large objects um, and prop making. And I did that work for a couple years. Um, all the, and and it's, it is a sort of technical field that rewards being able to do a lot of things. Um, like as a scenic designer and builder and prop maker, you're constantly doing something a little bit different every day, which works really well for me because I'm kind of one of those easily distractible people. And actually, I've been one of those easily distractible people my entire life, and I've always done a lot of kind of completely different things my entire life and, you know, just kind of like pursued whatever interesting thing happened to be there. Mm -hmm. It's very, you know, very like, ooh, shiny sort of person. And um, as I got older, that was actually a point of 
I mean, not contention, but it, it was definitely a thing where I saw my peers get really good at one thing. Um, and here I was with like my, you know, 20 different things that I was all a little bit good at. <laughs> and um, you definitely feel that that feeling of, I guess, failure, you know, when I was looking at all my friends in their, you know, late 20s, just all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, I mean, they'd been working since they were teenagers, but just becoming just incredibly excellent comic artists. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm a, an okay comic artist, but it, it was a reasonable thing because if you consider the time that all of us had put into our art, um, I was years behind. Like, you know, I might have been making comics for eight years, but if you consider all the other stuff I'd done, I was probably only making comics for like two years. So of course, like, someone making comics for two years isn't as good as someone that's been making them for eight. Um, and so what's happened in the last five years, <laughs> I guess, is that all of the crafts that I do, like all of the things that I do, I have finally hit that point of just sheer experience where I've made it past like, you know, amateur to like journeyman <laughs> level. In the, that 10,000 hour theory, which I don't, I don't know if I totally buy into, but it's an interesting benchmark. I, I mean, I don't completely buy into it either. Yeah, but I think there, there's some amount of experience. So it's, it's like you were working in enough different fields, you're accruing experience. Some people you knew were kind of on that one path, right? And they got there because they're like, all right, I've hit the mark where I've just put the hours in and now I can be a mature whatever. And you were working in multiple different directions. So you had to, um, you had, you had to reach that point simultaneously across several fields to fuel yourself. Absolutely. And like, you know, each marker of progress is a lot slower than everyone else. But, you know, now I'm in my mid thirties. And I'm like, oh, okay, I've been building installation art for about 10 years, and I've been a comic artist for about 15 years. And maybe each of those things, it's like, well, I've really only been an installation artist for like four years, but four years is a pretty, like, you know, good chunk of experience now. But you've been building sets for what? I mean, you must have started in, in your high school years, right? Yeah. Oh, for yeah. 20 years like, or more? Yeah. <laughs> So that's, I mean, that's where that pays off too, is that uh, is, I think some of us tend to, and I certainly do this myself. So, someone was asked me the other day, we're talking about journalism and uh, I was talking to a composer and they were talking about how early they'd started doing music. And I'm like, yeah, I think I started working on a newspaper when I was nine, you know, my elementary oh, school yeah. had one. I'm like, oh, I mean, that was an indication of that. The fact that I've been working on a newspaper for 40 something years, maybe that means something. Like, well, you were probably doing set design. You know, I imagined you 20 plus years ago, like, you know, drawing and doing set design, yeah. doing all these things like all at the same time. Is that is that right? Totally. Yeah, that's exactly what was happening. Um, and then, you know, at some point, I also became able to, I guess, synthesize all of these things together. Like being able to draw helps me a lot as a scenic designer and installation artist. Um, I joke a lot that I have some of uh, the cutest design elevations in the business because <laughs> I am a comics artist. So <laughs> all my design elevations are very like colorful and painted, uh, which is not something that's necessary as an installation artist. It's just that I already have those skills. Um, and then I, of course, worked a day job for maybe seven, eight years as a project manager, largely in a technical paralegal. And that just made me really good at organizing things and kind of telling people what to do, which also helps in both installation art and a little bit 
a little bit in comics. Comics is a much more isolated field. But <laughs> anyway, the point is that everything I've done over the past, you know, 20 years has all been coming together in the last five years and um, letting me build this very strange but functional career. Well, I wonder what the if there's a like a, a cultural part of this as well because I know that comes out uh, strongly in your you know personal comics. But um, I was talking to I've got a friend who was born in Russia. Her family emigrated to Brazil. Then she moved with her family uh, when she was an adult to America, and she's had to go through these multiple language progressions. And it's actually at times been extremely hard to have that shift. And she is coming into her own you know later in her life than she'd like to. I think. Um, and I, and I know the story from other people who've had to go through multiple countries and every time to learn a new culture, to learn a new language. I think hers is a more extreme one. But do you feel that you're that having, you know, lived in different countries, gone through different cultural experiences abroad, but also in the United States being someone in a in a culture that isn't necessarily I mean, you've talked about this a lot in your again, your personal comics, that isn't, you know, the mainstream culture. It's not the one that's defined as some kind of normative experience for people. Do you are you do you feel that that has shaped the whole approach to your career? Is it your career a non-intentional outgrowth of that? Oh, wow. Well, this might be the first time I'm thinking about it. Um, but All right. yeah, actually, <laughs> like, holy, holy shit. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty uh, prototypical third culture kid, which is a term that I only learned maybe about eight years ago. Oh, wow. And it kind okay. of put my, my entire understanding of my adolescence into perspective, where it's like, oh, wow, I mean, this constant moving and like these feelings of isolation and always feeling like I've, I just kind of live between cultures. Um, it, it's wow, that's like an actual feeling. It's like an actual thing, wow, it wow. turns out. But but yeah, you know, I was born in Malaysia, I moved to the Philippines when I was 10. And then I moved to the United States when I was 16. So, I mean, age 10 and age 16 as kind of your your points for moving to a new country. Yeah. And I wasn't necessarily learning new languages, but I, I was learning different cultures and different ways of engaging with people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I spoke English growing up, so I, uh, I joke a lot that uh, I... That at age 16, I lost my accent in about, like, three months. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Oh, yeah. Whenever people are like, oh, my God, you, you speak like an American. How'd you lose your accent so quickly? Oh, and I was yeah. like, I was a 16-year-old. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you want to fit in, like, as quickly as humanly possible. Um, so, of course, I lost my accent. I have a friend in Maine. I lived in Maine for a couple of years. And a friend I was working with there had no trace of a Maine accent. And her father spoke. You had to get a chainsaw to cut through his. And hers was the same thing. You have to, I mean, this is an odd example, but you have to acculturate um, it to, you know, to your surroundings. And she could turn it on and off also. So she could code switch. Even at the Maine accent, you can code switch back and forth. But I was thinking in the in the countries you lived in also, and in, in America, we have this as well, depending on where you live, is that being surrounded by a brew of other languages, even if you were speaking a dominant language or you're speaking English or some, you know, French or some universal, I shouldn't say, you know, empirically imposed hegemonic universal language that's that's Mandarin that's been imposed. Um, you're, you get, your brain is being fired in a different way than if you're in a monoculture language environment too, I think. Absolutely. Um, I mean, most of the environments I, I, I lived in were fairly English speaking. Like mm-hmm. I went to an international school. Um, well, in Malaysia, I sort of spoke three languages simultaneously, which is a little bit sad because I've lost the memory of oh, two no. of them. <laughs> just, I mean, just out of sheer lack of practice, mm-hmm. which happens. But, but you know, growing up, starting from the Philippines and then, and then America, I think the two 
voice uh, speaking things that I that I would code switch between the most is mostly just like you know Northern California kind of Valley Girl, which I know isn't a thing because Valley Girl is Southern California, but you know what I mean, yeah. kind of that that yeah. like oh like yeah whatever, um, and then English professor voice. Mm. <laughs> Which is the voice that that you put on so that white people take you seriously, um, and so that that's the other one that I that I put on a lot. Um, but but mm-hmm. you know, right now I'm not really sure which mode I'm in. I guess I'm just kind of like in chatting with a friend mode. But definitely thinking of kind of how sort of culturally all that influences my work today. A thing that I hadn't really thought of a lot until now was the fact, I mean, you know, I am I am Chinese, I'm Malaysian Chinese, and my, my family is a fairly straightforward Asian family, which is, you know, get, you get A plus on everything. <laughs> um, and I, I was talking to a friend recently, and I was talking about how um, I took Spanish, and I said, oh, I failed my Spanish class. And as I was saying that, as I was saying I failed my Spanish class, I realized I did not fail my Spanish class. I got like a B minus in oh, my wow. Spanish class. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just that the, the, the bar that was set for my academic achievement was so high that anything that fell, you know, below like a B or C was just, it was just not good. And my parents were not like incredibly strict. Like I wasn't punished for not getting you know, A's, but there was definitely like a sense of disappointment. Um, and I I feel like I took to this very differently from, I guess, almost what I would expect for myself. Like, instead of having that drive for perfection, um, the moment I got the chance to fail, I found mm. it very liberating. Mm-hmm. Um, like, after after you know, basically kind of a, a whole lifetime-ish of academic achievement, when I got to grad school, and there were a couple things I wasn't doing, like, particularly great at, and for some reason, it was just like, oh, this is actually kind of nice. And then I would take up <laughs> hobbies that I wasn't, like, particularly great at. And I was like, oh, this is fun. I can just do things without having to be good at them at all. Um, and, and that that actually uh, was felt really good. And, and I was never, you know, the kid that was in... I was not like a gifted kid. I was not a kid that was told that I was good at like one thing mm-hmm. um, or like, you know, a prodigy or an ingenue or anything. So I don't have any of those expectations of having to be perfect <laughs> because um, the, the bar set for me when I was a kid was so high. And I was like, I'm not meeting that anyway. Like, are you kidding? <laughs> this is great. You know, I have a friend who has kind of like a, actually has a B plus uh, theory of work too, which I'm always fascinated about. And it's the, um, I think people are can be most successful at life if you're uh, not a perfectionist, but rather you know exactly how to scale the perfection uh, approximation. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Like, I, and I, I feel like it has. Um, it almost makes me sound a little more self-deprecating than I really am, because mm-hmm. I'll say things like, "Oh, I wasn't a good student," and I was like, 3.8 GPA is good." Like, <laughs> but it wasn't, you know. Good, good. So I wasn't a good student. I was like, wait, that's not true. And I've kind of been like thinking of that a lot as a, like a mid thirties person that doesn't care about their high school GPA anymore. Um, <laughs> that it's like, wow, these are really ridiculous societal, well, familial expectations of achievement. 
Yeah, that I've, that's very interesting. Especially, I think a lot of people who have expectations put on them that they don't set themselves. You know, the sort of externalized authority, however strong the authority is, it says, you know, you have to achieve at 100% all the time or you have to exceed 100% all the time. A lot of people rebel against that by doing nothing, right? They, they drop out, they break, they do whatever. And it feels like your rebellion was doing 98% instead of 100%. <laughs> like, well, my rebellion was uh, pursuing things that, that my parents didn't think I would be good at. Just like, you know, art and theater. Uh, and, and you know, like, I, I also have an English degree because it was a, well, you have to get one semi-useful degree. And that was English for me. Because I was, I was good at English. And they kind of had this, uh, it was sort of, um, I guess, spite-powered, if it makes sense. <laughs> I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit. But, uh, I mean, you know, I'm sure they would have preferred if I were, like, a scientist or doctor or engineer. But because I was good at English... There was this kind of idea that if I became an English professor, and if I ended up, uh, you know, focusing in the field that I was interested in, which was medieval literature, specifically mm. medieval British literature, then it's kind of like this strange, spiteful triumph, like you know, this immigrant kid from a col- like a colonial country mm-hmm. is teaching English, um, and in a sense, that that would have made it incredibly satisfying for them. And I do think I've carried like a lot of that spite-driven achievement metric into my life, despite the fact that I did not become an English professor. That's practically installation art in itself. That <laughs> scenario you're describing is exactly like, I will do this as a project. Let me pause to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Glowforge. Uh, now, before I get started, I should disclose that one of the co-founders, Dan Shapiro, is a friend of mine and a previous guest on the podcast, in which we talked about the game he developed, Robot Turtles. Dan told me early on about Glowforge, and I was able to visit their offices and see early models before they shipped. I'm a big fan of Dan and the company, and for full disclosure, I received a Glowforge as part of their referral program. So I kind of talked it up when it was in the crowdfunding stage and since. Uh, I have mine, and I... I really love it. I'm happy to share more information about it with you. You may have heard me even talk about it in podcast episodes because it's become part of how I pursue a creative living. So what's a Glowforge? It's a uh, digitally controlled laser that etches, scores, and cuts in wood, stone, metal, acrylic, leather, and other materials. But what makes it special is several things. First, it's easy to use. You don't have to learn a bunch of new software. It uses a, a web app. It has calibration built in. It's replaced a lot of expensive parts with sensors and cameras that makes it compact and uh, sort of a better device for the everyday use of people like me instead of specialists. Um, Second, you can use it as simply as drawing something, placing it into the bed of the device using the web app, and you can scan that and then cut or engrave it. I made a back scratcher the other day just this way. Third, it works with complicated shapes and images that you create in vector and bitmap software that you're used to working in, like Illustrator, Photoshop, and the free Inkscape. You can transfer the skills you already use to make stuff you print on paper or in other kinds of media and uh, print them, let's say print in quotation marks, on real material. It has the feel and magic of visualizing something on screen and making it become real. Fourth, it's compact. I have it on a small table near my home office computer. It only requires a standard dryer vent or you can throw a hose out a window if you have one nearby. The active laser area is about 11 by 19 and a half inches. It can hold larger material in its bed. If you get the pro model, it even has a pass-through slot so you can feed material up to 20.4 inches wide and a quarter inch deep at any 
any length and work on it in sections. And finally, I'd like to say it's affordable enough for a serious craftsperson who sells some of their goods or for a small business owner. I've used the Glowforge to make signage to produce pieces of wood type for uh, letterpress printing, cut leather for the sole of, sh of shoes, to make paper crafts with cutouts, to make my own custom iPhone stand, to make a tiny replica of a metal type case, and to create an acrylic adapter for the household shower so we could hang a shampoo and soap caddy. It's confusing, but it was easy to design and do on my Glowforge. So here's the thing. The Glowforge comes in three models, and you can get substantial discounts on each by visiting glowforge.com slash new disruptors. The basic model is $2,495, plus is $3,995, and the pro is $5,995. If you visit glowforge.com slash new disruptors, you'll get a discount of $100 off the basic model, $250 off plus, and a whopping $500 off the pro model. If you're trying to unlock your creativity uh, beyond what you can do with your own power of your hands and the power of digital technology producing toner on paper, uh, take a look at a Glowforge. It's made a difference for me, and uh, I really enjoy it and like the company, too. Thank you, Glowforge, for being one of the returning backers here to help us bring back the new disruptors. And now back to Shing. It seems to me that uh, it's very hard to pin you down because you have no intent in being pinned down that that there's no um you have a lot of different interests and i don't think i mean just even the introduction i was trying to say or look at your bio trying to say well shing does these things i'm like well but also you know you do you're a sculptor but then you make alien objects and you collect you have people send you objects in the mail and then sometimes like all right like i mean if i actually sit down and list off everything i know you do i think it would take five minutes and you'd say oh but there's also so I'm curious how um, you corral this because you, you're, you know, you're feeling in this rich artistic expression, you're being commissioned, and you have work that sells, you have a Patreon, um, you've got a lot of different directions you're going in, but it also feels like because this is such a rich moment in your life, there's a, uh, maybe not a necessity, but there's a place where you get to choose what you're doing more too. How do you corral all of these disparate interests, you know, physical, digital, creative, self-driven, commissioned into something that is working for you i don't know yet oh that's um, like great. i yeah. i'm i'm not 100 percent certain how it's working um i do know that it would be impossible without the internet it would be impossible without social media um and even though i'm i'm a little annoyed that they're partnering with reddit out of all places it would not be possible without <laughs> patreon I saw that, um yeah. Or, or the, the type of platform that it provides, which is follow this person and what they make versus follow their projects, which is a very Kickstarter model. Mm -hmm. I am very excited about drip partnering with XOXO because I, I do feel like, you know, that that's the kind of model that I'm moving towards um, of, of patronage and, and people kind of following me as a person and subscribing to what I make. Um, which has its problems, like it makes my own life feel very performative, obviously, since in a sense, I am selling myself as a creator versus just my work. But at this point, I don't feel like I have the option to withdraw from that. Like, I can't say judge me by my work alone, because like you said, there's a very large variety of that work. That's a really, gosh, I had all these images pop in my head as you're talking about that, about the sense of 
authenticity that we try to achieve as artists that we're putting forward into the world that makes people want to support what we do. But then there's the maintenance of that image, even though people know it's only an image, a reflection of who you are. And I mean, I think adding to that for you is you're a great customer as well. And you have kind of persona that I think, I mean, let me not characterize yourself. I'll tell you what it looks like from the outside is you have persona that you sort of identify publicly and say, I'm feeling in this mode or this mode. Sometimes you're actually wearing things that are, I guess I would identify as costumes. And sometimes it's like, this is what I felt like I'm wearing today. And that is part of, I would argue your artistic expression. I'll, I'll argue with you about yourself, right? That is part of your artistic <laughs> expression, but it's also part of that persona that is what brings people in. Uh, I mean, so it's not the like physical presentation of yourself, but it's like the manifestation of yourself as an artist as depicted by costume or clothing in addition to the art you create that is external to yourself. Am I yeah. overanalyzing how you approach or what that that relationship is? No, no, it's actually very fascinating to hear someone else like tell me that. <laughs> um, um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. And, and you know, let, let's like definitely mention that I definitely have like cute privilege and thin privilege. Mm -hmm. um, like I am a, you know, reasonably aesthetically appealing person by, by societal standards. <laughs> and, and I, I would be lying if I said that that has not, that has, you know, that hasn't helped me in my career. And, and I've, I have leaned into that. I've been like, and I mean, this actually is what I look like. I mean, I do wear these things normally in real life, but it is helpful like, for instance, for me to broadcast pictures or videos of me building stuff, because mm -hmm. I am a cute girl working with large power tools. Um, this is a, it, it is something that people enjoy. And I like the thing is that, you know, I'm not an amazing carpenter. I am a passable craftsman um, in most fields, but it is probably more interesting to watch me work than to watch, like, I don't know, another dude, master craftsman. <laughs> right. But I want to say, I'll, I'll push back against, I think you're being incredibly honest about all kinds of things that a lot of people aren't always as self-reflective about, right? About their position. And uh, at the same time, I'd say like you're, you're carving out a position, right? There's, there's an exoticism of so many things. And I know that you wind up in that that bullseye because you're a person of color, you're a person who, you know, comes from another country, uh, people identify, and you've done, again, in your personal work, you kind of have, I think, honed in on a lot of ways in which people other you. So there's a point also in which you're claiming a space for yourself and showing it to other people and saying, this is a space in which I feel comfortable living and screw, screw you if you have any objections. But so it's both like carving that out against, but also for, there's all the people who are like you, who have felt othered or felt excluded from spaces. You know, and you could say women as a whole because of this sort of, you know, masculine approach to both construction, uh, to stagecraft has often been a very heavily, I don't know if things change, but stagecraft has been a very heavily masculine dominated field. All these things. So seeing you building stuff and getting dirty and, um, you know, making this stuff, it feels to me that you're, that all of what you said is obviously true, and yet this is part of creating a space for people like yourself by demonstrating, like almost like a picture book, like here is Shing making a building, here is whatever. Like, oh, I can put myself into that picture. Yeah, I mean, obviously there there is a level of exoticism that happens um, with watching me work, and uh, this might sound incredibly mercenary, mm. but what happens when I broadcast, you know, these pictures? of me doing, you know, building big things, is uh, 
lots of old white men give me money to do it. And a lot of, you know, younger, smaller people, like kids, women, femme types, look at me working and they think I can do this too. So in a sense, yeah, I am pretty mercenary. Like, yes, I am exoticizing myself. Well, it's, I'm not exo exoticizing myself quite so much as in my person is exoticized by other people. But as long as these other people are giving me money to do the work I do and to, you know, influence and inspire other people into believing and understanding that they can also do these things, that the entry barrier is not as high as they think, um, it, it's worth it. <laughs> And it's subverting the patriarchy. I mean, to use an old phrase, but it is, is that you're, yeah. <laughs> you're using, if people are giving you money because of how they perceive you and it helps you further your mission of destroying what they're doing, that's exactly what, that's a, that can be a great use of the system if that's, if, if that's one of the aspects. Uh, and I think th that's the other part is, as you mentioned, it's not, you know, it's not like there's one kind of person. I think you would be deeply uncomfortable if only older white dudes were interested in your work, right? Well, yes, uh, right. of course. And I mean, so, that, that was a flippant <laughs> right. comment. I know, but it's, but I mean, the fact that there, the fact that it is, you know, and frankly, I'm an old, I'm an old white dude now. I realize, Jesus, <laughs> when did I get old? I'm an old white dude who's interested in your work. But it's, um, but I think there's, your work provides an opportunity. I always think of this in, um, uh, spectatorship position, right? Mm -hmm. Is that when, uh, and I think this is a deeply difficult problem in modern culture, and it's the thing that it's part of what um, I think is part of why we have all this revanchism and and strife right now is the people who thought they were the default culture and always would be are angry that there's any change. Why are we? Why is it only 97% white now instead of 98%? We always expected 98. Like we gave you 2%. Why, why do you want three? Right. And so I feel like part of this positioning is that culture has opened up so there are more spectatorship positions and uh, like identification positions for people of gender identification, sexual orientation, country of origin, cultural background, religion, ethnicity, and race. Like all these things have opened up and it's this huge fight we're engaged in. Your work is fascinating in that you have both, because you have the personal work that is deeply self-identified and provides identity options for other, for other people in different ways, but you also have a fair amount of work because it's so um, alien and unidentified that it allows everyone, there is no position in which someone cannot find themselves because they can't identify themselves directly with you know these little space people like i didn't even know they had i shouldn't i mean spoiler i didn't know they had bodies underneath until late in the series <laughs> which was amazing i'm i'm, I'm not spoiling for people i don't want to spoil for people but it's true so there's there's this revelations in your work too so um again i don't want to overanalyze what you do but i think there's that that idea that i can put myself into your work without feeling as if I'm invading a space and without appropriating it and without having to say, well, this is another space like the dominant culture space. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, my work is not that subtle. Um, even the stuff with aliens and, and monsters, it's like, it is about the alien experience right. as an, <laughs> as an immigration. Um, it's about it's about yeah it's about the immigration experience it's it is about otherness mm -hmm. um and and i don't think that's very subtle at all um although i will say that that uh and this is a completely uh technical point um the reason my people were like little jelly bean people is yeah. only because at the time i didn't know how to draw people but i could draw jelly beans <laughs> oh my god so okay. So uh, later, <laughs> later on, it, I, I've since figured out how to draw people. So they do appear outside their little jelly bean suits now. 
I love the little jelly beans, but it, ta- it it's like, <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, so I played, I, I've never even played all the way through Portal, but I was playing it, and at some point I get a glimpse of a woman shooting a gun, and the I didn't realize the protagonist was female, and mm-hmm. I suddenly had this amazing, like, out-of-body experience of like exchanging myself with them and I was like whoa this is incredible because I screwed up I assumed default male so I messed I up I love what they I love what they, how they do that it's and just the, so elegant so the the your jelly bean people at the same moment like I was like whoa oh gosh like I don't I have to rethink like I thought of this as a whole different thing but there's people inside so it worked out really well <laughs> it was about oh yeah and I mean they're all they're all queer women yeah exactly <laughs> so. right, which is great which is great. There's, that's you know my my uh, younger son and I are watching uh, rewatching Steven Universe from start to finish. So we have a lot of interest in uh, space people, space. Crew oh, women. I love it. <laughs> um, the so uh, we were talking about Patreon earlier. I'm going to do a little change of gears here, but the um, I, I'm curious because you're. It didn't sound like you were dissing Kickstarter, but you're talking about the difference between that Kickstarter proj- project focus and the Patreon like personal uh the connection to work focus and now i can't remember have you done kickstarters as well as having the patreon campaign uh yes i think i've had five kickstarters oh my gosh i should um, know that i probably backed one and i'm forgetting this is, this oh, is the you, kickstarter you did film. actually there you <laughs> thank okay. you very much i really appreciate it <laughs> I, I, know, um, I can't even remember so it's great um yeah so now tell me so what's the when you set out to approach something like that do you have a particular approach that takes you one direction to or another because you have a very, you know, you've got this active Patreon campaign. It's almost $1,500 a month, which is, uh, you know, you're in somewhere in the 95th or 97th percentile, I think, of yeah, campaigns Yeah, it's a good there. half my income. <laughs> oh, my God. That's fantastic. But so what puts you over the top where you're like, all right, I, need, I have this project thing and I need to pre-fund the expense to make it go uh, and make that decision? How do you get to that point? Um, well, I mean, it by accounting, um, <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's a very straightforward thing. Like Patreon um, funds my ability to live and to experiment on various creative projects. But I mean, building a large art installation takes tens of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I it's fundraising. It's just straight up fundraising. Um, what Kickstarter has absolutely done for me is make it possible to ask my community to help support a single large project instead of having to go, you know, beg like individual rich people for money, mm-hmm. which is incredibly liberating and, and definitely makes my projects feel like it was built by the community because it, it, I mean, it is, and it's not just the funding. Like I work with a almost entirely volunteer crew, although I do pay a few. Um, and, and yeah, all, all my large work is built by the community that built them uh, and funded them. And, and that I think makes it feel very special and personal to me. Oh, that's fantastic. And I, I mean, I love the, the installation work. Um, I don't, I've never seen one of your installations in person yet, but I've seen a lot of photos. And um, I'm so used to working with digital things, and I used to work more in print, and so I'd actually get a book, but a book is not a building. And I just wonder what it's like to move back and forth between that, that kind of realm of doing something that appears only online, doing something that's like a small format book, for instance, and then building something that's, you know, hundreds or thousands of cubic feet. Um, how do you work among those or what's the what's the feeling that takes you one direction or another um you know uh introversion versus extroversion mm-hmm. um <laughs> like you know often i go through just very introverted phases where i want to hole up at my computer and i don't want to talk or like meet anyone but there's definitely this part of me that loves collaborating with a large community 
and loves just building big shit. I like looking at something I've made that's physically like larger than myself. Like it feels really good. Um, I, I don't really have a, a better way to describe it, except I love that feeling and I chase that feeling. So every few years I get this bug in me that it's like, I need to build something big again. <laughs> um, that's great. And I, and I, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I still haven't really figured out um, how I switch between them. Uh, most of the time I'm building stuff on the internet and I'm, and I'm making things um, that's a lot smaller that fits in an envelope I can ship. But yeah, every, every couple years or so, I need something that kind of feeds this, this, uh, this other part of me that just wants to get messy and dirty and, and assemble a crew and assemble a crew of absolutely wonderful, talented people to build something that is bigger than, you know, any one of us. Well, this came up recently because you did an installation for the XOXO event festival conference uh, thing. And um, I, you were posting photos as you were prepping parts of it without revealing what the whole thing was, obviously. And then this bar existed, the Blue Box Bar, for two nights. And uh, what is it like to build something that extensive and wonderful that has a tiny lifespan? You know, it's got this little moment of, um, you know, we're talking before the podcast about corpse flowers and how we love them. And like the blue and then it, the you know that giant flower is open briefly and then it collapses and it's gone how does that feel to make that uh well i mean that's actually something that people say to me a lot which mm -hmm. is wow um you put so much effort into something that lasts for two or three days like how's it feel mm -hmm. and i'm like well honestly that kind of sucks um <laughs> <laughs> Like, you're right. It's a lot of effort for something to exist for a very, very short period of time. And gosh, I wish it would exist for a little bit longer. Yeah. But um, at the same time, I, I do like the idea that, that what I'm building are these very little ephemeral, you know, these little ephemeral things. And, and just, you know, having this bar exist in this strange little pocket of a, I mean, it, it was a, uh, like a, in a veterans memorial stadium is like an old coliseum type thing and it just feels like you know like creating a little bit of magic in an otherwise fairly sterile environment mm -hmm. um and and i'm and i'm coming to be more okay with that every time i do it now but now you have uh all these materials that you used for it are they stowed away somewhere do they get destroyed actually um well and i'm embarrassing amount of that actually came from my own personal stash. Um, <laughs> I know you're a, Paul, you're a Paul Bunyan fan, as is documented. I am. <laughs> uh, I, I, am, I have developed a bit of a Paul Bunyan obsession over the last few years, and this year was the year that I've been turning that a bit more into my actual career, which is a little mind-blowing to me. Um, <laughs> but fantastic. But I, I actually had a fairly significant amount of Paul Bunyan ephemera that made it into that installation, and I acquired a little bit more for it. So, you know, I now have uh, four axes. I mean, I only had one beforehand, so so four is, is an increase. And um, I'm working on a graphic novel that, that takes place uh, in uh, the Sierra Nevadas in 1885 in a lumber camp, and, and I've been kind of joking about hanging this five-foot long crosscut saw that I acquired for the for the XOXO installation and just kind of hanging that over my desk 
like a crosscut saw of Democles um, <laughs> to inspire me to work harder and faster. Uh, it gets lower that, and lower. If you're not yeah. close enough words, it gets smaller, closer and closer. Exactly. Oh, like, it's gosh. like, meet this deadline. There's a, there's a literal saw hanging above you. But um, it all it all kind of, all the stuff sort of ends up back in my space in, in one way or another. Um, a lot of signs uh, end up back in my garage, which, you know, it's... I'll send you some pictures of it. It, it looks pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, actually, artist garages would be a great series. Uh, oh my god, that's really know, neat. What have you? What have you stowed? What is in there <laughs> besides the thousand books that you're that you have uh, printed and are selling out, shipping out one at a time to people? Um, no, that's great. I, I just, I'm sorry, I missed that installation because I just thought it was the, it just, um, it's so interesting. And now, and other installations you've done are obviously uh, either permanent or more permanent, right? Or some of them are no. With everything you do, hold on, I don't think I understood it. All your things are are installations that get destroyed later. They, they are. <gasps> yes, they are all temporary. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, that's wild. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I started my installation art work uh, building uh, building at Burning Man because it is, it is one of those places where you can bring anything you want and you can set it up and you can have tens of thousands of people see it and enjoy it for about a week um, and then you take it all down. Um, yeah. I've never burnt any of them. I kind of send them out to East Jesus, which is sort of an installation art graveyard. Well, it's not. I use it as an installation art graveyard. Um, it's a little art collective out by the Salton Sea. Oh, okay. But, you know, my work falls apart. Yeah. Uh, it, it's meant to fall apart, and, and I'm okay with that. Uh, but no, no, none of my work is permanent. Um, all of it is ephemeral. Wow. And, uh yeah, I, I'm still, you know, I, someday I would like to build something that lasts a little bit longer. But I also have to be realistic about the fact that my training and my building skills um, are as a stage carpenter. And sets do not last forever. Mm-hmm. So I would have to learn a slightly different skill set um, in order to build work that lasted longer. Well, I, I have to ask you about Popeye then, because um, I saw <laughs> this. I have a, I have some friends, these are like acquaintances I know in Seattle, artists who they were in Malta. And they went to the old Popeye set, which uh-huh. I had no idea had been turned into like an attraction. And um, for those who listeners who don't know, Robert Altman made this version of Popeye that's widely regarded as both a crazy, <laughs> awful mess and bomb and also one of the greatest, weirdest things ever made. But the it incredible- is my favorite movie. <laughs> is, I know. Now, you're not the only person I know who says that. <laughs> if that's not surprising. And it's, you know, so it's it's a, it's like, um, in, so, in some levels, it's like Repo Man, and that's a cult classic. But in other ways, it's totally different because it's trying to tell this kind of very narrative cartoony story. But the thing that's amazing, I didn't realize that, like, the, it was shot in Malta and that the it's a tourist attraction now. They kind of renovated it, I guess. And you it can is, go it there. It's a theme park. Yeah, it's astonishing. So, 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 but that, I only want to interrogate you about that because that is a weird thing that was intended. It was a stage set. It was intended to be temporary. It would have been torn down. You know, what I went to visit was the Harry Potter experience north of Ooh, London, yeah, yeah. which is again, the same thing. These were sets built for a movie. They shot all the movies and then they turned it into an attraction. And it's really, have you been there? It's really wonderful. Uh, uh, not, not the Harry Potter experience. I actually I recommend not. it because it paints itself as something for Harry Potter aficionados, but it is actually an examination of theater craft and stagecraft. And it's all 
My wife and I both like the Harry Potter books. We took our kids there because they wanted to go. But it is actually an incredibly worthwhile exploration into hand-making things and digital manufacture and and the quality and nature of craftsmanship, craftspersonship. And I was shocked. I had no idea this would be about. So we had a great time. It's like here, like every craft, everything. And then you've got to walk up to the sets and see how beautifully, you know, there's CGI and green screen stuff. And then these beautifully, lovingly created realistic things and Anyway, so it's a surprise. So Popeye, the reason, so I just think of that, it actually has a parallel to the Popeye thing. The Popeye thing was ephemeral. It was a movie. It should have been torn down. Um, so I should ask if you've been, Malta's a little farther afield, I realize, but what, what's the attraction of Popeye the movie or Popeye the, the uh, installation? Um, well, I went to Popeye Village earlier this year. Oh, did, okay. I, did I not tell you that? I don't um, know. I saw pictures so from I've somebody else there. I know. Somebody no, else that, knows that was, too. Well, I was there as well oh my um, God, this year great. and it was incredible. Um, there is a lot of scaffolding up because, mm-hmm. you know, they are maintaining a, a set that was built in the 1980s. Um, and, you know, like when you're talking about the Harry Potter experience, it is fairly easy to maintain a set that's in a warehouse. Yeah, absolutely. Wood is a solid building material that's been used <laughs> for, you know, centuries. It's fine. <laughs> it will not fall apart. But Popeye Village is by the ocean. And, and it is a little more difficult to maintain a set that was built uh, Nement is a temporary set that was built, you know, right next to the Adriatic Sea. Um, that said, it looks amazing. And it is absolutely possible to maintain something like that if you just work at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. It is a theme park, obviously. So there were definitely, you know, college students playing Popeye and Olive Oil and Bluto. Um, and they play the uh, Sweet Haven song. It's it's the oh. the so Harry Nielsen did the soundtrack for Popeye yeah. and and the Sweet Haven song is the first one on that and they just loop it in the town square. <laughs> uh, it's only it's only about five minutes yeah. long, um, and it's it's one of my I think it's one of I think it's a genius song and I think it's brilliant. But I did listen to it for about an hour and a half on loop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, Popeye Village is incredible. I really ended up in Malta exactly for that. It was the only thing I did in Malta. Um, I was on a cruise ship, <laughs> so. That is fantastic. I think you've just revealed so much about yourself for your love of this. Uh, <laughs> oh, it, it was it was a pilgrimage, Glenn, and um, yeah. Well, yeah. It's, the film the film <laughs> is a shambling mess, so it's like it's not really a it has a narrative, but the movie is like slightly incomprehensible. So the movie itself is almost like a a work of art that gets defined as film that's not really, you know, it's not, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating. I, I haven't seen it for just long enough that I think it's a little more hazy in my mind, but it's, it's, it's Robert Altman. It's fascinating. It's just yeah. its own, it's its own thing. And you can't like compare it to like a superhero movie or another comic book movie. I think. No, it, 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 you know, it takes its time. Um, it's pretty rambly. Um, visually, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, it is about, you know, family and home and making human connections. <laughs> but it's also about, you know, Robin Williams just mumbling his way through an entire movie. Uh, and it's, I yeah, I, I, I don't know how to describe it. Um, it. It's my favorite movie. I make everyone I love, like, watch this movie. And it, it's really a surprise that they still love me afterwards. Wow. But um, It's Wings of Desire for me. I'm a kind of a downer, I think. Really? Yeah, yeah, that's a bit of a downer. <laughs> I find it inspirational, but it, it is a little dark. Uh, so, actually, and on that note, so let me ask you the last question. This is a heavy one, but I think I, I think it has to be asked: is is 
you know, you're a very creative and productive person. It feels to me when I look at your, you know, your various feeds, Instagram and Twitter, other stuff, Patreon, um, you have ideas and, and things kind of bursting out of you all the time. You're always making, creating. So how do, do you create art when we're in an era of existential horror? You know, every day is a new disaster or a new threat. And um, how do we make, how do you make art? How do we make art when all this is going on around us? Yes, I am dealing with that right now because I do feel like the world is collapsing mm. um, around me. But I guess, I don't know. I mean, I've been a person of color and an immigrant my entire life, so I've always had a feeling of dread. <laughs> so the dial just dial changed a little bit, but yes, not a new yes. dial. It, it, is, it is absolutely dialed up, um, but I, I've never lived in a world where I felt like everything was okay. Mm-hmm. And, and I, it definitely feels less okay now. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, it, it does feel much worse, but it's you know like i come from a country where the deputy prime minister was jailed for sodomy mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh you know in contrast it's like yeah okay things things are hard right now but at the same time i feel like we do have to create joy right? and we have to continuously work towards this better world that we want to exist in even if things are falling apart and even if we are like fighting against you know what feels like an insurmountable power, uh, but we can still create uh, little pockets of hope in our own communities, and we can still create um, little spaces for joy for the people that we love. And, you know, I do try and do, like, a few slightly more tangible things every year. Um, like, I'll I'll do endurance art projects that raise, like, actual money uh, for nonprofits that do know what they're doing. My best friends and I run Resistance Cranes, where we uh, we and a bunch of amazing volunteers fold a thousand paper cranes in 24 hours, and we sell them to raise 10 grand in 24 hours for uh, for nonprofits that uh, do work with immigration, uh, immigrants and refugees. So uh, translating um, you know little pieces of art into tangible income for people that know what they're doing. <laughs> to um, to resist this awful administration, um, that that's very healing for me, and I, and I consider all that kind of part of my work as well. I will. Uh, I, that's a wonderful. That's that's such a that's an inspirational answer. Sorry, you're inspirational. Um, that is great, <laughs> and I will I'll put a link into that project. Uh, I bought two grains this year. And, Thank you. Uh, They're on the way. Yeah, I can't wait to get them. And I just think, I mean, that's I, I think that idea of being able to carve out space is the whole point. And I think art gives us hope. Art illuminates the corners of our souls and if we don't do it then um you know i mean i try to imagine a place in which all the artists were so defeated that they that nobody created anything and you think well that's you know that's the hell it's not we're living in one hell but that's the actual hell is that uh it's is when people would stop creating like then you know things are wrong you know instead of people creating uh, resistance art or beautiful art or art that has nothing to do with what's going around but just art 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 that's what we do. Yeah. And I don't feel like I'm, you know, specifically creating like resistance art, mm-hmm. but I do think that my art is political and I, it is personal and the personal is political. So, um, yeah. <laughs> e- existing in a space as yourself is a political act right now, unfortunately. So yes, uh, I do feel like existing when in a space where people do not want us to exist is absolutely a political act yeah. and, and being joyful in the face of that is as well. Let us blow kazoos in the face of evil. <laughs> and um, you can find Shinjin Core at shinkor.com. That's S-H-I-N-G-K-H-O-R.com. And of course, it'll be linked in the show notes. Shin, thank you so much for joining me and talking about your work. 
Thank you so much, Glenn. It was really fun talking with you. This has been the New Disruptors. The theme music is by Jeff Tolbert. Audio lives at SoundCloud, and the site runs on Squarespace. This episode was hosted by me, Glenn Fleischman, and edited by Stephen Shapansky. You can help support this podcast and fund the production of more episodes by visiting newdisrupt.org/support and find out about monthly and yearly membership options that include access to a private discussion forum for listeners, a fancy enamel pin, and being thanked on an episode. This episode copyright 2018, a periodical LLC. It's licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution by linking back to newdisrupt.org. I only ask you don't offer it for sale. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.